0: Well, good morning, church family. It's so great to see you guys uh, here on this first Sunday of Advent. You know, this is the first day of the new year. Did you know that? Happy New Year. Uh, If you're a liturgical nerd, you'll know that. And I'm sure that all of you are and that you celebrated the end of the year last night with a big party and champagne, Right? All of you did that? Um, No, I do love the fact that um, we try to follow that year because the church in some ways is called to tell time a little differently because our time has been formed and our days are shaped by the story of the gospel, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're always a little out of step with the world. We're always doing things a little differently. And so we begin our year today with Advent. And every season of the year trains and shapes us in a different way. And so Advent trains us how to wait how to be waiting, hoping, yearning people. Waiting is one of those things that no matter who you are or no matter what your income or what your race or what your background or what your health or what your culture, everybody has to wait. It's one of those things that unites the human experience and none of us like to wait. In fact, many of us in much of our culture does everything that we can to eliminate the need to wait. I love Amazon Prime. Uh, It's truly an amazing invention that I can, you know, think of something that I want and tap my phone a few times and literally have something on my doorstep within 24 hours. I mean, that's crazy, like dark magic kind of stuff, right? And it's a wonderful convenience. I'm not going to cancel my membership. And yet, Advent suggests to us maybe that kind of elimination of waiting is not good for our souls, Maybe it actually is good for us to learn how to wait. Maybe it's not the best thing for us to eliminate all waiting from our lives. And Advent is teaching us what it means to be a people who wait. And so this particular Advent, we're gonna be in the series that will extend through Christmas called Waiting for the King. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look first at some stories about waiting that Jesus tells in the book of Matthew. He is telling stories about who we are waiting for. Advent reminds us that we are waiting not for a what, we're waiting for a who. We're waiting for God to come and save. We look forward to that day when God will come and he will make all things right and all will be well. That's what we're waiting for. And then December 22nd, we're going to zoom back to the beginning of Matthew and look at the nativity story that Matthew tells and put ourselves in the shoes of those first early Christians who waited and anticipated for that coming Messiah. Now, that might strike you as a little odd that we're first going to look at the second coming of Christ and then go back to the first coming of Christ. Wouldn't it be better to start with Jesus' birth and then move to his coming again? Well, actually, the church has always known that there's real wisdom in what we're doing. In fact, um, I love what um, the writer Fleming Rutledge writes. This is what she says The rhythm of the church's season turns out to be theologically profound. If we began with the nativity and moved to the last judgment, we would be so softened up by that little baby in the manger that we wouldn't be able to take the second coming of Christ very seriously. The solemnity and awe do not lie in the fact that the baby becomes the eternal judge. What strikes us to the heart is this. The eternal judge, the very God of God, creator of the worlds, the Alpha and Omega, has become the little baby. So we begin with the judge, and then we move to the baby. So take that in as we move to our scripture reading today from Matthew chapter 13. You'll find it in your bulletin or turn there in your Bible, Matthew chapter 13. Let's hear this story that Jesus tells about waiting. Jesus told them another parable The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn people of God, this is the word of the Lord. Have you ever wondered if Christianity is really true and if Jesus really is risen from the dead and if all this stuff that we talk about in church is for real, then why is the world still so messed up? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, we come in here and we sing these songs I and mean, all that stuff that we just sang about Jesus is king. Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, God is reigning over all. Death and evil and suffering have been vanquished. And then we go out in the world and what do we see? Death, evil, and suffering everywhere. Cancer, disease, marriages falling apart, people dying of overdoses. And we see everything so what is this? Is this just, is this a farce? Is, is this a hoax? Was Marx right? Are the existentialists right? We're all, this is, you know, religion is just a crutch that's ameliorating our pain as we wait for death? Is that what this is? No. And Jesus is teaching us, really answering that question in sort of a roundabout way with this parable— by saying, look, friends, listen, I am king, for real. I am advancing my kingdom in the world. A new day really is coming. And yet, he says, there will be a little while in which you will have to wait when everything is gonna seem like it's just like it's always been. There might be times where nothing seems to be happening, but here's what I want you to do as my people. I want you to faithfully Wait. Faithfully wait. Jesus is teaching us how to wait. He's he's our weight trainer. Get it? He's training us. (laughs) Jesus is our weight trainer. He's training us to wait. So let me first give you a little bit of background um, on this parable. During the time that Jesus was teaching, there were very, very strong messianic expectations among the people of Israel. You might know a little bit about first century history. Israel, a little bit before this had been conquered by the roman empire and so they had become a colony of rome uh, they had lost their their government they lost their political and religious and social freedom um, they were kind of living under the oppressive foot of the roman state and because of that there was very strong hope and expectation at the time for a political messiah which means savior or hero They were yearning for someone to come and set them free from the oppression of the Romans and to restore God's rule in their land. Now, there had been many false messiahs that had showed up and that had claimed themselves to be messiahs and had only been cut down. But Jesus has come now upon the scene and he's pretty different from all these other so-called messiahs. His teaching is different. His posture is different. His ways are different. He actually seems to be backing up his teaching with powerful signs and miracles. And everybody begins to think, This guy must be the one everywhere he goes. He's healing the sick and feeding the hungry and defending the oppressed and confronting evil. To use the imagery of Jesus here, wheat seems to be growing up everywhere around Jesus, everywhere he goes. And so the people of God are convinced this guy is the one. They are ready for Jesus to do what they expect the Messiah to do, which is to go into the midst of those Roman weeds and to begin hacking them down to restore God's justice and reign to God's people in Jerusalem. That was the hope. That was the expectation. But Jesus makes it really clear in this story, y'all, that's not how my kingdom works. First of all, my kingdom, he says, is way more radical than you can imagine. It's not just about a new political regime or social change. Don't you see, Jesus says, your problems are way deeper than bad government. Uh, your, your issues are way more complex and problematic than the Roman state. Reality itself is broken. Evil has struck at the very heart of the universe. There's a cancer at the soul of creation. That's what Jesus, the Messiah, has come to heal, not just to liberate them to a new government. That's the first way his kingdom is challenging. But the second way that Jesus blows their expectations is that he teaches that his kingdom is not going to come as they expect all at once, immediately, catechismically. But Jesus's kingdom will advance gradually and incrementally. Not all at once, but Jesus is on the move, making wheat grow, but all the while, Jesus says, there will be this long time in which weeds and evil will be growing right alongside my kingdom and my wheat as well. That's what my kingdom is going to be like. Sometimes theologians call this um, the already not yet character of Jesus's kingdom. Jesus's kingdom has already come, but it is not yet fully consummated. One illustration that is often used to explain this really well, I think, is the illustration of what happened at the end of World War II. If you know your history very well, you'll know that there was a day at the end of World War II that was June 6, 1944, that was called D-Day. Anybody know about D-Day? D-Day was the day that the Allies invaded northern France at Normandy, and basically that day reversed the course of World War II. Up until that point, the Nazis had a grip on Europe. Everybody thought the Nazis would win, but what the Allies did in this one uh, invasion is they broke the Nazis' grip and they set the stage for the liberation of all of Europe. So on this one day, June 6, 1944, essentially the war was won. The outcome of the war was determined. D-Day. However, and this was strange, the war went on for another 11 months Until May 1945, V day, and that's when the war officially won. Germany officially surrendered, even though everybody knew in that 11-month period that the Allies had already won. Does that make sense? So that is, they lived in that strange 12-month period in the already and not yet. The Allies had already won, but the war was not yet over. Their victory had not yet been consummated. And Jesus says, this is now your reality. I have come, Jesus says. He is the king. He has won the decisive victory. He has lived. He has died. He has risen. He is reigning over all things. He has conquered evil. And we can see evidence of Jesus' kingdom everywhere around us. Don't you see the wheat, friends? Don't you see the wheat? Don't you see? Have you? I've seen it. Have you seen uh, people freed of their guilt and shame? through the mercy of Jesus. I've seen uh, relationships healed, marriages restored. Um, I've seen people healed of physical diseases. Um, I've seen relationships and community be built across divisions of race and class and culture. Uh, I've seen people be freed from addiction and enslavement from sin. I mean, Jesus really is alive and his wheat really is growing all over the world. His kingdom is advancing. He's come and yet... Yet, yeah, they're all the weeds. Somebody walks into a crowded building or a bridge in London and pulls out a knife or starts shooting. Uh, a missing child shows up dead in a field. Young mom that I know falls dead this past week, leaving her husband and two young sons. Refugees trapped. Trapped. In endless cycles of violence and war. What is going on? Well, Jesus says, look, this is how my kingdom is going to feel for a while. You're living in the in-between time. Yes, my kingdom has come. Yes, I am risen. Yes, my kingdom is advancing. Wheat is growing everywhere. And yet the war isn't over. The enemy continues to send out his sorties. In fact, the more the kingdom grows, the more evil persists, the more weeds advance. And sometimes it even feels like that the weeds are getting too thick and that the enemy is going to actually win. But Jesus says, no, don't freak out. The promise is the harvest will come. The day of deliverance is coming when God himself will clear the weeds from the world and root out evil and will establish his kingdom forever. But now we live in the in-between, the already and the not yet. That's where we live. You know, in those wonderful storybooks that C.S. Lewis told of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, when the wicked witch puts the curse of the never-ending winter upon Narnia. Do you remember that, kids? The never-ending winter. But what happens as Aslan uh, begins to move? The ice begins to melt. The the, the blooms uh, begin to make their way through the snow. It's still winter, but spring is blooming, and that's where we live. Winter and spring, darkness and light, weeds and wheat, all in the same world, all in the same community, sometimes in the same church, all mixed up together. That's where we live, right in the middle, in the in between. That's the nature of his kingdom. But here's what this story is really about. The story is about how we live faithfully in the midst of that waiting. Because here's the thing, it is a very difficult thing to live right there. That's where you are. And it's a hard thing to live there. Why? Because Christians especially get most sensitive to the reality of evil. Sometimes we even find ourselves in the crosshairs of evil. Sometimes we most yearn for evil to be removed from the world. And so there are always ways that believers are tempted to come up with wrong approaches to deal with the evil in the world. And that's ultimately what this story is Jesus about. He's training us how to faithfully wake. There's two wrong approaches I believe that Jesus is warning us against in this parable. I'll call them weed removal and wheat removal. You following me, friends? Are you there? Hello, hello, are you there? Okay, weed weed removal and wheat removal. First of all, weed removal. Notice the impatience of the servants in this parable. They did not like the idea of the weeds and the wheat growing together. So they said to the farmer, hey, Give us, Let us go out there with our machetes and our weed whackers and our weed killers and start exterminating all the weeds in the field because we want to get the harvest done now. The farmer says, no, that would seriously mess things up and cause a lot of damage in my fields. In fact, this is interesting because Jesus actually names a specific weed for the word weed that he uses in Greek in this parable, and that's the word zazenia, which was a literal form of weed at the time that was a degenerate form of wheat that looked just like wheat right up until the very end, and then the wheat would sp- spring um, its grain while the weed would not. And so the farmer basically is saying, look, you can't even tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat. You would take out way too much you would do great damage to the crop. The better way is just to let the weed and the wheat grow together right up to the very end, and then we'll sort things out at the harvest. So weed removal is not an option. Now, unfortunately, weed removal has always been a temptation that believing people have succumbed to throughout the ages. In the time of Jesus, there was a group of faithful Jews who were called the Zealots. And in fact, a couple of Jesus' followers were Zealots. And they believed that the Roman weeds... Uh, were so tenacious and and such a threat to their livelihood that the only way they could survive is if they violently rose up against them and cut them down with the sword that were the zealots now unfortunately throughout history christians have taken this approach as well you might have heard of some of these approaches the crusades witch hunts inquisition the burning of heretics. In all these instances, Christians mistakenly believed that they could stamp out evil in the world and bring God's kingdom, and they believed that they were the agents of God's justice. Now, thankfully, we may not see a lot of this kind of Christian violence today, and yet this attitude can persist in the minds of many Christians. We think it's those people that are causing all of the problems in the world. If only we could rid ourselves of that person, or that group, or that political party, or that country, or that group of people over there, then everything would be better. It's, a, it, it's really an attitude, weed removal is an attitude that is unwilling to live with ambiguity. Impatiently intolerant of the gray, right? An insistence that condemns anyone who isn't any church that isn't perfect, any situation that isn't perfect, and that thinks that we can make everything right now. We can bring the harvest now. Jesus forbids this. He says, we're not the harvesters. You're not the judges. In fact, you don't even have the wisdom often to know the difference between the weeds and the weeds. I know many non-Christians who do wonderful things, and I know many Christians who do terrible things. (laughs) There's a whole lot of evil out there, but there's a whole lot of evil in here and inside of you and me. So thank goodness that only God is the judge So don't spend your time trying to tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat. Don't mistakenly believe that you can rid the world of evil or that you can identify its source as long as we are living in that in-between time waiting for Jesus to come again. There will be weeds, there will be darkness, there will be evil, there will be pain and sorrow. There will be times where it feels like the darkness is just so deep that it's gonna win. But our job is to wait. Not to preempt the harvest or to start hacking before the time has come Leave the harvest up to God. Weed removal, not an option. On the other hand, though, some Christians can be tempted to wheat removal. On the other hand, they think, well, if I can't remove the weeds from the world, I'll just remove myself. In Jesus' time, you had the zealots on the one hand. On the other hand, you had some people that were called the Qumran community. And these were people who hated the Romans, but they were also nonviolent. And so they decided to withdraw themselves literally into the desert, dig caves, and live there, isolated from the Romans, detached from the problems of the world. Believers have been tempted to do this in many ways throughout the ages, right? We think the world's so messed up, evil is so rampant, everything's just going down the drain, so let's just remove ourselves from the field. Let's isolate ourselves from the problems of society, There are still some Christian groups that literally isolate themselves from mainstream society, but what is a much more common Christian approach is to create parallel Christian social institutions and bubbles within society, right? So Christians have been known to create their own housing developments, um, their own vacation resorts, their own businesses, their own schools and movies and music, and their own gated communities, basically coming up with Christian bubbles so that we and our family can just simply be with those that we agree with, share the same values with, and be free and safe from the weedy contamination of the world. Now, I know that none of those things are wrong in themselves, and we all have our own reasons that we discern with God for the decisions that we make for our families and our children and our lives. The problem is with our motivation. Are we motivated by fear, anxiety, even resentment. Our world is scary. Y'all, I know this. I'm, you know, Sarah and I are trying to raise four girls in this society. The, the world has changed so much, even, even just in the last 10 years. This is a scary place. And so, I get it. My temptation. I don't want my kids to be contaminated. I don't want my kids to be infected. So, I don't want to kill the weeds. Just not have to look at them or have to deal with them. But Jesus says, if you belong to me, wheat removal is not an option. Jesus himself, modeled this he hung out with all the weeds this is why the conservative religious people hated him because he hung out with all the weediest parts people in the weediest parts of town with the pimps and the prostitutes right and the tax collectors and the poor and jesus said if you're going to be my followers you got to be like me be engaged don't remove yourself i've not called you to be safe he said i've called you to be a strong strand of wheat in the midst of a field of weeds shining my light being salt and leaven spreading my joy and the work and the work of my kingdom throughout the world Jesus owns the field. Jesus is spirit in us. We don't have to be afraid. Be my people. Don't leave the field, Jesus says. Wheat removal is not an option for his followers. So if that's true, if we're not to do wheat removal, not to do wheat removal, then how do we live in the waiting? That's the big question. How do we live in the waiting? Well, let me just offer a couple of suggestions as we close. First of all, make sure you're wheat, um, look, you're not supposed to figure out, clearly this passage teaches you're not supposed to figure out whether who else is a weed or a wheat, but it is pretty clear that you want to be wheat, right? That's pretty clear from this passage. One of the scary things about this parable is that Jesus seems to be saying that there will be a lot of people who appear to be Christians and who look just like wheat, but who in the end discover that they have no grain. In the end, of the harvest, they're not actually Christians, let me just be blunt for a second. A lot of people are duped into thinking that they're Christians when they're actually not. Can I say that? I think I can. Um, a lot of people are duped into Christians when they're actually not. And that should frighten you a bit. We still kind of live in the South, sort of. Um, and even though I know that our society has changed a lot, it still is the case a lot of the times that if, you're not, if you live in the West End of Richmond and you're not Muslim, Jewish, or Hindu then you think of yourself as a Christian, right? My family's been here since 1827. Of course I'm a Christian. We've been Presbyterians for 135 years. Of course we're Christian, you know? I'm a good person. I pray. I'm a Christian. But friends, what's clear in this parable is that you can look just like wheat and still be a weed. What makes you wheat? What makes you a Christian? Going to church doesn't do it. Being a good person doesn't do it. Praying sometimes doesn't do it. Certainly being born in a certain part of the country doesn't do it. The only thing that does it is your relationship to the farmer, your relationship to Jesus. Being a Christian just simply means saying to Jesus, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I recognize that it is your life, your death, your resurrection that is the basis for my acceptance before God. I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. Send your spirit into my life. Change me, make me into wheat. This is not self-reformation, this is not religion. This is spiritual transformation that comes from God's power invited into your life, changing you from the inside out, from wheat to wheat. Have you done that? Are you wheat? I know some of y'all are here just because you're visiting your family for Thanksgiving and you came to church with them just to be polite. Thanks, that's really nice. Um, But I just want to suggest that maybe you're here because God wants to speak to you and wants to invite you to know Christ. So make sure you're weak. The second thing though, and this is for all of us, is live in patient, active hope. I love this parable because Jesus is teaching us that we have to avoid zealotry on the one hand and passivity on the other, right? So on the one hand, we really do believe that Jesus is alive He's reigning, and his kingdom is advancing in the world. We should expect, friends, to see amazing God-empowered things happening in the world. We should expect to see people change. We should expect to see people liberated from sin and addiction. We should expect uh, healings to happen, marriages to be healed. We should expect to see wheat, the kingdom advancing in the world. And that means, as Christians, we can never be cynical, never be pessimistic, never throw in the towel on any person or any situation. Jesus Christ is raining he's risen from the dead and his wheat is advancing in the world thanks be to god right yet we know there are always going to be weeds in your life and in the world as long as we live in that in-between time even the best relationships the best spiritual experiences uh, the best families the best churches the best opportunities everything will be mixed with weeds darkness is still very much here winter is still very much here Darkness is present. Evil is rampant. In fact, there's going to be moments in your life, and some of you are in those moments right now where the weeds feel so thick and the darkness so deep that you just find yourself crying out to God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? And in those moments, I want you to remember this. He has. D-Day has happened. God has come. He has acted decisively for you in Jesus. Jesus fought demons for you. Jesus endured judgment for you. Jesus experienced hell for you. Jesus rose from the dead for you. Jesus reigns for you. Jesus promises to come again for you, to resurrect your body and make you new along with all things. All of this is a certain thing. Victory is secure. And for a little while, you're going to have to deal with attacks and setbacks as the enemy sends out his sorties in a last desperate attempt to create destruction. But here's the promise. Victory is certain. And so we always stand in the darkness of dawn. There's a big difference between the darkness of dusk and the darkness of dawn. In dusk, we are not standing in the darkness of dusk, watching the sun go down on creation as we plunge deeper and deeper into darkness and the end of yourself and the end of civilization. That is not where we're standing. We are standing in the darkness of dawn. Where the sun has already come up over the horizon. We see glints of it everywhere. We see light spreading everywhere. We know that though we are in the dark, the day has almost broken out over all creation. That's where we stand, the darkness of dawn. And what does that do? It gives us patience. Patience that keeps you from demanding the perfection of God's kingdom now. Patience that empowers you to endure through hard and painful seasons. Patience that keeps you from taking judgment into your own hands patience that keeps you hopeful even when things feel very dark why because we know that jesus has risen and his kingdom power is already at work making things new he is the patient farmer he is the owner of the field he is actively sowing he is quietly transforming creation and the harvest is coming and what do we do we watch and we wait christ has come christ is coming Christ will come again. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We do thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are risen from the dead and you are bringing the harvest. We just have to admit, though, sometimes it doesn't feel like it. And it just feels like nothing is happening and that the weeds are overtaking and the darkness is thick. And we just need some hope today. Some of us in here especially need it. And so we pray that as we come to this table, that we would meet Jesus here at this table, experience the hope that he he can give so that we can be people who know how to faithfully wait. Work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.